0: It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my my eye back to my senses? Welcome neighbor
1: to folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host. Amanda O'Fox Gillespie
0: It's embarrassing all the stupid things.
1: Hello neighbor and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, our beliefs, our passions as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. In this Folk U Radio show, Former Newfoundland Premier, the Honourable Brian Peckford, gives part history lesson and part current state of affairs on the state of Canadian civic life. Where are you listening today? From neighbor, who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, water, and air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, Kla'amen, and Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. So just a little bit more about today's presentation. This talk was originally brought to you Uh, to Cortez by the SCCA Programming Committee, which created a live event where Brian Peckford, the Honorable Brian Peckford, attended via Zoom at Manson's Hall. Thanks to that committee and Brian Peckford for allowing Folk U Radio to record and disseminate this talk. Peckford is the only surviving drafter and signatory First Minister of the Canadian Constitution, and he's the, so he's the only survivor, surviving one now, 40 years after the Canadian Constitution was first patriated and the Charter of Rights and Freedom created and adopted. So that was in 1982. So this is still really pretty new in Canadian history, the fact that we have our own uh, uh, constitution and Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He was the drafter of the Newfoundland proposal, which became the basis of the current Charter of Rights, and he sat at the table that actually did the final negotiations. Did you ever hear that story about the Quebec minister not being there and wonder what really happened? Well, this and much more is actually revealed in this talk. So um, it's really interesting, uh, a little bit of history that uh, you know the last person who can actually speak to what happened there um, is sharing with us. So this history lesson then leads up to today. And Brian Peckford shares with us about the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom lawsuit that he and others have filed in federal court seeking to strike down the federal government's mandatory COVID-19 vaccination requirement for air, train and other travel. So right now. Um, Peckford and many other Canadians are not able to to leave the country at all to travel by air, train, or other forms of transportation across the country, etc. So Peckford discusses more about the formation of the Charter of Rights and Freedom, why these laws today set a dangerous, impossible, irreversible precedent that ought to concern all Canadians. I think it's a great talk um, full of historical importance and um, new ways of thinking about what's happening today. This is then followed by a live Q&A from, um, from, Wednesday, from the Manson Hall talk, which was last Wednesday. So stay tuned. Uh, I hope you will find it engaging and learn a lot. As always, you can send your questions, comments, suggestions for future shows to the letter U at FolkU.ca. And one reminder before we get going, that next week's You radio show will actually be a live show aired simultaneously on air. And at the same time, we will have a meeting um, from 1 to 3 outside under the tent at Manson's Hall uh, on the Cedarland. land. So behind the radio station, behind the parking lot, and that one will be on preparing for the big one. We have pretty every single emergency service um, represented at that talk. So there will be a lot of really good information about what happens when things go awry and then what happens when all the things that we think are supposed to happen when things go awry break down. So should be very engaging, interesting, and I assure you, you will learn a lot. So please do come out and join us for that outdoor event. Um, and if you truly can't join us, then tune in right here to CKTZ 89.5 FM or on the web at cortezradio.ca. And um, I, will, I
2: will begin at the beginning, and I'll assume that uh, you want me... uh, What I like to do is to give this whole thing a little bit of context and a little bit of history because it's only in that way that you'll fully understand it. it. It's easy for people to just say, here's the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, here's the three or four sections that apply to people and leave it at that. But unless you understand the whole history and context of it, you will not totally appreciate where we are today. So that's why I'm going to take some time to go through it and then we'll open it up for questions. Anybody has questions of anything that I have said or has other questions that that were on their mind, then I'd only be too happy to try to answer them afterwards. So we'll try to do it like 30, 30, 30 minutes for me and then 30 minutes for you to ask questions. So uh, I see some people moving at the back of the hall there. Um, It's a little bit distracting. Everybody can just uh, stay in their seats. Uh, That would be good. Uh, Okay. So uh, as most of you might be aware, uh, Canada became a country in 1867. Uh, And we became a country through an act called the BNA Act, which is really The British North America Act, because at that time, Canada was really British North America. Uh, We were colonies of Great Britain or of the United Kingdom, as we know it today, okay? And so it was appropriate that the act would be called the British North America Act. And at the time when Canada came together, there were only four provinces. Upper Canada, which became known as Ontario, Lower Canada, which became known as Quebec, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. There were only four provinces that began Canada, if you will. The rest of it, the rest of the uh, places uh, that weren't joined then, some of them were colonies of Britain like Newfoundland was. Newfoundland was a colony of Britain the same way as all the rest of Canada was and had its own parliament, but they didn't want to join them, nor did Prince Edward Island, and uh, some other places uh, in the West, although the West was not as well inhabited at that time. So Canada came together in 1867 through the British North America Act, or the BNA Act, and that piece of legislation described what Canada was. Four provinces uh, made up Canada, and in that act it defined what The federal government was responsible for and what the provinces were responsible for. And then over time, after 1867, the other provinces joined and the Western provinces joined as the railway moved from Upper Canada or Ontario West to Manitoba, then Saskatchewan, Alberta and British Columbia, where we are. And so over time, the other areas that were colonies of Britain gradually became provinces of Canada. And then you had the two territories, which are now three. But at that time, you had the two territories joining in. Uh, who They weren't full provinces and they were not uh, well populated. And they were territories, really wards of the federal government. But they were called territories, Northwest Territories and the Yukon. And so over time, as I say, after 1867, more and more of the provinces joined until today We have 10 provinces and three territories, Nunavut, Northwest Territories, and the Yukon. At that time, besides saying what each government was going to do and how you were going to vote, there was no Bill of Rights, no Charter of Rights, okay, in that constitution. So we did not have a written Bill of Rights or Charter of Rights in 1867, Any time a Canadian after 1867 had a problem as related to individual rights or freedoms, you had to find a lawyer or whatever, and they would look for something in the British common law that would apply, some unwritten British common law, okay? And so we existed as a country without a written bill of rights or charter of rights as we know it in Canada from 1867 until 1982. And all individual rights and freedoms were handled through unwritten British common law and also customs and conventions that had grown up over the years from 1867. In the United States of America to the south, the Americans formed their country in 1776. And in 1791, they had a Bill of Rights. And as you know, uh, as well as I, that you hear very often about the Americans talking about their Bill of Rights and the rights that individuals have in the United States, all the way down to their gun rights, which are still part of their Bill of Rights and still part of their Constitution. So I want to make the point to you that the Americans have had a long history of individual rights and freedoms being written down that they could look at, that they could read, that they could go to a lawyer and say, here it is in the Bill of Rights. I want you to represent me in court, and I want you to challenge what the governments are doing because they're interfering with my individual rights in that Bill of Rights. So they had a different history of individual rights and freedoms than Canadians. We came by a written charter of rights later. We still had rights and freedoms, but they were in unwritten British common law a little bit perhaps more uncertain than if it was written down. Anyway, as the century, the 20th century progressed, many Canadians looked to the South and said, why don't we have a written Bill of Rights uh, like the Americans? Why don't we have something written down? And so there was a large push put on to try to do that. But they all really failed because in order to do that, what you really had to do was go back to London. And so what you really had to do first was to patriate your constitution. In other words, bring your constitution back to Canada so that you didn't have to have anything amended in London anymore. And that was called patriation. And so in 1981, there was enough, uh, what shall I say, consensus around the country that perhaps this was a good time to see if we could patriate the Constitution and at the same time, add on to it a Bill of Rights or a Charter of Rights. Now, I have to say that in 1960, uh, there was a Prime Minister, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, some of you older people, if you're as old as me, uh, might remember him. Uh, He was a, a prairie lawyer from Saskatchewan, he became Prime Minister. He did introduce the Bill of Rights, to the House of Commons, okay, the Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights had all of the rights and freedoms that you now see in the Charter of Rights. But the difference between the two is that the Bill of Rights only applied to federal jurisdiction. It never applied to provincial jurisdiction. So, therefore, it never applied to all Canadians. But it still should be recognized as the first attempt and the first action that was taken by any Canadian government to put in writing individual rights and freedoms. So Mr. Diefenbaker should be recognized and acknowledged and congratulated for him and his government actually introducing into federal law uh, rights and freedoms for individual Canadians. The problem with it was it was only a federal law and not in the constitution And number two, it only therefore applied to people who came under federal jurisdiction and not to everybody in all of Canada. That's why in 1981, when we sat down to negotiate to bring the Constitution home and to add a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it was going into the Constitution. And that, by going in the Constitution, that's a national document for all of Canada. Many Canadians get confused when they say federal and national. They think it's the same thing. It is not. Not in a federal state like Canada or in a federal state like the United States or Australia or Germany. They're all federal states where the powers are shared between a central government and the states or the provinces. And so federal is one thing. National is something bigger and broader than federal because now it applies to the whole nation. That's why we were putting the Charter of Rights in the Constitution, because if it was only a federal law, it would only apply to people under federal jurisdiction, and it could easily be changed. Any federal parliament with a majority in the the House of Commons could change it very easily every year, for that matter. So it was not permanent, whereas the Constitution is more permanent. And so we start negotiating to patriate the constitution in 1981, it went on for 17 months. A lot of people don't realize that this wasn't done in a week or two weeks or a month or whatever. It was over 17 months that the first ministers of Canada, the 10 provinces and the federal government, the prime minister and all the premiers were negotiating. However, we ran into a very big problem over halfway through the negotiations when the prime minister decided that was Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliot Trudeau, decided that us premiers were too difficult to deal with and he was going to leave the table and patriate the Constitution and have a Charter of Rights that he wanted. And so he did. He left the table and he passed a law in the House of Commons to patriate the Constitution and also to add on to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that he wanted and his government wanted. Well, That didn't go down too well with the provinces. And so there was a split. Eight provinces said, Mr. Trudeau, you can't do this. Two provinces, Ontario and New Brunswick, supported Mr. Trudeau, supported the prime minister, that he could do it. And so we took him to court. The eight that opposed what the prime minister was doing took him to court, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, we went to the appeal court in Newfoundland, Quebec, and Manitoba, because we had to go through the provincial courts first. We never had the power to go straight to the Supreme Court. We had to go to our highest courts in the province, and we picked those three. And so those uh, court actions were held, and and uh, then uh, the prime minister got cold feet and decided that, oh my, I might have, I don't know if I've got the, the authority like the provinces are arguing, perhaps, perhaps I don't. And so he wanted to refer the matter to his highest court was the Supreme Court of Canada. So all three of those court cases, plus the prime minister's and the federal government's referral, all ended up in the Supreme Court of Canada to be one case. And the Supreme Court of Canada heard it and made their decision on September 1981. September 28th, 1981, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled. And I have to pause and say... We then had judges that were friends of the law first, friends of the prime minister second. We don't know if that's still true today. There's a lot of people concerned about not only the parliament and the prime minister, but about the judiciary and how independent they are. But in 1981, many of these judges who were on the Supreme Court of Canada were very good friends of the prime minister. But these judges to their everlasting credit, ruled on the law first. And they just stuck to the law and ruled that what the prime minister was trying to do was unconstitutional. He needed the provinces to be involved in order for this to be constitutional. And so then he came back to the table. And we agreed that we'd have three more days of negotiation. And we either had our Constitution brought home and a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, or we didn't. And so three days in November 1981 were the days when we negotiated 10 premiers and the prime minister, who had just lost in court two months before that, sat down to see if we could negotiate a patriation, bringing the Constitution home, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. First day, no movement whatsoever, a stalemate. Second day... Stalemate, no movement by either side. Although the provinces had secretly asked for a meeting with the prime minister and had a small delegation go to him on the first night, on the night of the third, to say, We have certain things here where we think we can compromise a bit to try to get an agreement. He turned it all down, the prime minister turned it all down. And then there were other proposals made by the provinces, <clears throat> but they were all turned down by the federal government and the prime minister. So on the night of the 4th, we only had one day left. And I, with my delegation, looked at where we, what we had done for the past two days and developed a sort of a compromise proposal, which we put in writing. And that night we presented it to the provinces of British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan in the Saskatchewan suite at the Chateau Laurier Hotel to see whether they thought it had any chance. And I sent my two deputy ministers to the Shadow Laurier that night uh, to see whether the other provinces, three provinces and their representatives thought there was any chance of this succeeding. They thought it had a chance and therefore we got the other members of that group of eight that were with us to participate by phone and in person until we got an agreement based upon the Newfoundland proposal late that evening, early that morning, 12, one o'clock. So we retyped the amending proposal and the uh, provinces said to me, since you started this and it's based on your proposal, your province's proposal, you presented to the group of eight at breakfast that next morning, which had already been scheduled, which we did. So the next morning we presented it to the eight provinces, the eight first ministers to see whether we could get approval for it and with all the First Ministers in attendance, including Quebec. Quebec wasn't there the night before because they weren't in their hotel rooms and we couldn't find them. We found out later that they were over into a dinner in Hull, Quebec, that night, and nobody was in their hotels. If you look up the history books and all the popular uh, 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 descriptions of that time, there is this uh, phrase which is called the Night of the Long Knives. So the press decided that we were trying to stab Quebec in the back. That is all a lie and fabrication, and it's still in a lot of the encyclopedias and books about that time. Sadly, I'm the only one left alive, First Minister, who was there, uh, and I, I can put a lie to that, and I did in 1991 in a book that I wrote. So it's not, this is not the first time that I put a lie to it. I did in writing, and since that book was written in 2012, 2022, nobody has challenged what I said in that book. So one gets the feeling that I may be right, given that I was there and it's now in writing. And all the documents are in that book as well, by the way, that we presented the night of the 4th and the next morning and so on. So that morning, all of the eight were there and they approved without amendment what we had decided the night before, except Quebec. Quebec spoke up. And they had a chance to look at it, even though they weren't there the night before. They did have a chance to look at the proposal uh, before breakfast was finished that day or before that meeting was finished. So then I was elected by the eight or by the seven who signed it, who supported it, to present it to all of the first ministers in a scheduled last ditch effort later that day, the 5th of November, 1981, which I did. That proposal then was negotiated for a number of hours in the afternoon and that became the Patriation Agreement of 1981 with a Charter of Rights and Freedoms as part of it, which the next year, 1982, became the Constitution Act 1982. And that's what we have today. That's what we're talking about today. So that's a brief history of how we got the Charter of Rights now, that was not only easy because the prime minister left the table. There were many items that many provinces wanted to now include in this chance to amend the Constitution. So we started with over 20, got it down to 12 items, and the Constitution Act today consists of seven. One of them is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I tell you that because <clears throat> any deal that's ever struck since the time of Socrates When you're bringing governments together and you're negotiating constitutions, they are a bargain. They are a compromise. Nobody ever gets everything they want. And so many Canadians don't even realize. They think that just the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was done in 1982. No, 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 no. There were many other things, six other things done uh, in that Constitution Act 1982. The Charter is now one of the more important ones. But there was another one that was very important, too, and that was the indigenous uh, people, First Nations people. And for the first time, we put in the Constitution that the indigenous people of Canada would be the Innu, the Inuit and the Métis. That was never defined before. The First Nations of, of of Canada were defined and their treaties were honored in that Constitution. We would recognize the existing treaties. And that's in Section 35. Of that constitution, I just give you that as an example, right? There, there are six others besides the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So everybody has to understand that this is this is a bargain, and we're not talking about a federal act, or a provincial act, or a bylaw in a municipality. This is the sacred document of every country, the constitution. This is the glue that keeps the country together. This is a permanent kind of document where your values are all uh, placed, right? including the Charter of Rights or a Bill of Rights, whatever you want to call it, okay? So here we are today now in 2022, having gone through two years of what has been alleged to be a pandemic and an emergency. And uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms by all the governments of Canada, in my view, have violated that sacred document, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, there are four sections to the Charter, which are really important from an individual freedom, individual right point of view, okay? And there's Section 2. Section 2 says that every Canadian has the freedom of worship, the freedom of conscience, the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom of association. That's all in Section 2 of the Constitution. Section 6 of the Constitution has in there your right as a Canadian, every single Canadian from Cordes Island to Bonavista, Newfoundland, from from Iqbala to Niagara, every single person who calls is a Canadian has these rights and freedoms. Section 6 talks about your right of mobility, your right to travel, anywhere in Canada, or leave Canada. That's in our Constitution, in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And then Section 7 talks about everybody, you, me, and everybody in Canada, having the right to, listen to this, life, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to security of the person. And this bears directly on what's happened in the last two years. Security of the person. Nobody is allowed to touch you unless you agree, especially injecting something into your body. That's bodily autonomy. That's individual autonomy. That has been the hallmark of medical ethics ever since Hippocrates. Right? Individual autonomy. Security of the person, it's called in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So there's three. The fourth one is Section 15, which says every person in Canada has the right of equality before the law. Right now, of course, as you know, and I know, there isn't equality before the law for me and others who are unvaccinated because I can't travel. I can't visit. Now I can as of April 8th. For many months, I couldn't visit certain uh, premises in my community that other people could. So I wasn't equal before the law. They, that was violated by the governments of Canada. The provincial governments and the federal government and the municipal governments, where there were municipal governments. So these are the four main sections of the Charter Rights and Freedoms that apply to you and me and, and are the, more or less the same as the Bill of Rights in the United States. Okay, It covers the same territory, if you will. The same themes. Sections 2, 6... 7 and 15 and if you plug in on your computer if you have one uh, the constitution acts of canada up will come the bna act and you just got to scroll down and you'll come down to the constitution act of 1982 and then the charter of rights and freedoms and you can read it all there for yourself it's all very easy to access on your computer i do it every day because people are are emailing me and contacting me and i copy and paste the, the relevant sections for them so that they can read it for themselves, or tell them how to go in and and get that on their computer. But these are the four main sections where your rights and freedoms are outlined, defined in writing, and are in the constitution of our nation, okay? Now, when the uh, virus came to Canada, and the governments sort of overreacted and and were very fearful, Most of the governments, uh, provincial governments, were taking their uh, uh, orders, even though they didn't have to, from the federal government. And the federal government of Canada was taking its orders, more or less, or its ideas, from the United States of America. And the United States of America were taking its uh, orders or information from wherever they thought they could get valuable information. But it was very invaluable information. The first lot they got was from London, uh, there was a, a group there in London in the university who predicted in the first month or two a uh, week or two after the virus hit around the world that millions would be dying in the streets the Imperial College of London was called okay and if you read some of this uh, in some of the books you'll come across the Imperial College of London so here was dr fauci and the people in the United States taking their 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 sort of their orders if you will or the information from a very bad source. At the time, everybody thought it was very valid, but they exaggerated immensely. Millions didn't die in the streets. and, and But then when it was found out about a month or so later that some of this wasn't true, uh, then uh, the United States started to depend upon a group out of the University of Washington in Seattle. And they were likewise very exaggerating. So almost a year, six or eight months went by, when the governments of the world were taking their medical information, from sources that were completely wrong, completely exaggerated the extent of this thing and had it very, very wrong. And so that's what instilled in a lot of people and still to this day, a lot of people are so fearful because in those first weeks and months, it seemed as if uh, the world was heading down a very bad road, a lot worse uh, than anything we'd seen before. By the way, just before coming on here, I read a lawyer's uh, letter uh, to our our public health officer and to the government of British Columbia, where they forced the government, through freedom of information, to um, give them information for hospitalizations and how full the hospitals were for the five years previous to 2020. And And the hospitals were fuller then than they were in 2020, 2021, 2022. And that's in writing. And, and they're reminding the government, the lawyer is, for a group of medical professionals in the Okanagan Valley and Kelowna area about this, and they just sent it to me. I get a lot of this stuff, as you know, because being the only living first minister who was at to help create the Constitution and doing all of these Zoom calls, by the way, this is well over 100 that I've done now, uh, and um, all across the country, in every, in every province and territory, okay? I've done things like I'm doing with you people today. So uh, there was this great, great fear that that and, and a lot of people today, you might see people around still wearing a mask outdoors, even you know, on their bike or whatever. And, uh, you know, if you ever uh, had an opportunity to talk to these people, they would still express the fear that was in, instilled in them erroneously back two years ago. And they're still very fearful. They still believe a lot of this stuff, which has been proven completely wrong. Well, the, the the provinces of Canada, taking their lead from the federal government of Canada or from the other international governments I just mentioned, um, went into you know high gear of, of trying to say, how are we going to deal with this?" and then began bringing in these mandates. And uh, they then, I think thought, uh, I think early on they might have thought that they were wrong, but then they got in so deep they started to believe their own, uh, li- their own narrative. And then they went and they got their lawyers, no doubt, to go to the Charter of Rights and Pre- Freedoms and bring up Section 1. And this is the one that all of the governments of Canada now are relying on of saying, we can do this. We're, we're allowed to do this. Well, Section 1 gives us the license in certain circumstances to override the rights and freedoms of Canadians. Okay? And Section 1 talks about the right. Of governments to override the individual rights and freedoms, uh, if it can be demonstrably justified that what they're doing is necessary, that it's done within the law, that it's done with unreasonable limits, and it's done within a free and democratic society. Well, I was there at the time when this was written. This was not meant. The and I'm now in, will be in court over this. This was not meant for a pandemic like we had, where. BC and all the provinces declared an emergency and then tried to use Section 1. The intent of Section 1 was to be used in a time of peril when the state and the country was in peril of breaking up through war or insurrection, okay? That's what the intent of Section 1 was. And so my argument, and I want you to listen to this very carefully, is twofold. Number one, the Section 1 doesn't apply, so what you did was illegal, unconstitutional. But if you, I'm a reasonable person, and so if you want to take me on in a debate that Section 1 applies, I'll engage in that debate as a theoretical, just for argument's sake, because I'll show you that Section 1, even if it does apply, it doesn't apply in this circumstance. Because government, from Newfoundland to British Columbia, you have not demonstrably justified what you have done. And what does the monster, and I remember very well, I got a good memory, thankfully. I got a really good memory. As a matter of fact, I was telling a story to my daughter back in Newfoundland before I came on today, uh, telling her a story of like 50 years ago, and giving her the names of the people, the times of day it was, and so on. So I got a peculiar kind of memory for for different things. Uh, And my daughter said, how can you remember that? You know, that's 50 years ago. And it's just... And it was about when I was a minister in the government of Newfoundland, my first ministry, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, and about an individual who I had met down on the great northern peninsula in Newfoundland now in 1962, 63. And I could remember his name, the community he came from. I could remember all about it, what he was, and he later became mayor. And so I was telling her all of this, and she couldn't believe. It. So I do have a good memory for certain things. And I have a good memory for this. And I remember... When we were writing that section one, we had in there, first of all, justify. And a bunch of premiers, including your premier in British Columbia at the time, Bill Bennett, and myself and Peter Loughey and others, kept arguing to make it stronger. And so that's how we came up with demonstrably justified. And I say to lawyers today, right? No, 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 no. I saw your writing. I saw your letter. I saw what you put in the paper. No, it's not justified, It's demonstrably justified. And then I go on to say, how, what does demonstrably justify mean in government today? And all governments know this. It's how about a cost-benefit analysis? I did them when I was premier. Do a cost-benefit analysis to see if the benefit of what you're proposing outweighs the cost. And as we know today now, there are studies which show that the cure was worse than the disease in this case. Multiple studies. Dr. Paul Alexander's has shown over 400 studies, uh, by the way, whom I know, whom I've met and know, and many other researchers in Canada, like Dr. Brian Bride, out of the University of Guelph, who's also done a lot of um, research in this area. But in any case, no government has taken the trouble. Three territories, 10 provinces, federal government, 14 governments in Canada right now who put in mandates have not demonstrably justified what they have done. Therefore, even if Section 1 applied, they haven't met the test for Section 1 to be applicable in this case. And I can take one of the other four tests. We'll we'll say that they do it by law, we'll say reasonable limits, just for argument's sake. The other big test is in a free and democratic society. Hey, Premier, hey, Prime Minister, Hey, leader of government in the territories, how come you didn't have your parliaments open and have a select committee of your of your parliaments, which then would have the people's representatives involved? Why? Why weren't they open and a select committee established and call in all of the other experts who were challenging the government narrative, who were challenging Bonnie Henry's science, who were challenging... Uh, what's her name lamb's science in Ottawa. Why didn't that's what free and democratic society means having a parliamentary democracy. None of the governments did that. They opened and closed the legislatures long enough to give themselves more power so they wouldn't have to open them anymore. That's what they did. Okay. So in either case I argue that what the governments are doing is unconstitutional. Section one doesn't apply and even if it does apply and uh, I'm making the, those arguments before the courts, So uh, I don't think the governments have a leg to stand on. My problem, and your problem as Canadians, is this. That over the years since the charter came into effect, the educational system and the law society, law schools, have changed in how they interpret law. Okay? The words are there but they put different meanings on the law than was meant by any reasonable interpretation of the law. It's called in law, the living tree theory. Beverly McLaughlin, who was chief justice of Canada for quite some time, and who by the way, is, is a judge over in Hong Kong right now, believe it or not, that the Chinese have just taken over. She was an advocate, she, by the way, she was a graduate I think of UBC. She became an advocate of this living tree document which says the courts can uh, change the the interpretation of the law based upon how they feel the values of the society has changed. I take violent exception to that. I take violent exception to that. I'm one of those people uh, who is an originalist. I believe that the constitution and the charter as written Okay, and the words that are there, like demonstrably justified, pretty easy to understand. You you know, no need to try to twist them. You must go back and interpret the Constitution as it was written. If you want to to do it differently, then change the Constitution. And that's up to the elected, not uh, unelected judges. Judges should interpret the law. But what they've started to do in the last 40 years is actually make policy change the meaning of the Constitution to mean something different, okay? And there's where we have this democracy has a parliament, a cabinet, and a judiciary. The judiciary is really, really important, but only valid as long as it is independent and non-political and interprets the law, doesn't try to make new law. And what's happened in the last 40 years is they've started to make new law by reinterpreting the existing Constitution. So that's where the problem comes when you listen to uh, you know, on, on, on online or read in the newspapers. There's where the problem comes in, OK? Now, in the United States of America, because they've had a long or history of a Charter of Rights and Freedoms that I talked about earlier, you'll find that they quickly had a lot of the President Biden's mandates uh, proven to be unconstitutional. That they get to their courts quicker than we do in Canada. Have a quicker system through their states, and we're able to establish a lot, and are still doing it today. They're not finished, but they have struck down a lot of uh, these uh, uh, mandates, and a lot of the governors in the United States are quite strong in establishing and keeping these this Bill of Rights uh, valid. And so, like they have a Ron DeSantis in Florida, we don't have a premier to equal a Ron DeSantis in in Florida who's standing up for the rights and freedoms as they exist in the constitution as written. And I think there's like 25 or 20, uh, 24 or 25 states in the United States out of 50 that never did go to the kind of masking and mandates that the other 25 did. And so it's a different history altogether, but very interesting, given that they live south of us and they're 10 times larger to understand that. So this is the great debate in Canada today uh, and why... I sort of came out of retirement to fight this battle. I knew there was nobody else around as a first minister that they had all passed away. By the way, the last first minister passed away only last year. He was in his nineties. He was Bill Davis of Ontario. And of course he was with the group of two and the prime minister back when he said they could, the prime minister could unilaterally do what he couldn't do. Uh, so, uh, and he, he was older then, uh, but uh uh, so with his passing, it was left uh, to, to me, if I felt that way, to speak up. And so that's what I have done over the last year and a half, two years. Now, in doing all of these talks, and I've gone on too long now, uh, but it's necessary for me to tell all of this because it's important. And uh, how much longer I'm going to be around, who knows? And so um, I'll be 80 this year. So th- this needs to be told to people like you on Cortez Island, as it does to every part of Canada. And therefore, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's historic and it's also extremely important to hear from one of the authors of that constitution that's so in debate today, right, in an argument. But in doing this, I realized back in January that uh, I'm talking to talk. And yes, you know about the constitution. You were there. You helped write it, Brian. Okay, blah, blah, blah. And we're really happy that you explained it to us from your point of view. Uh, but uh, I was waiting for somebody to stand up in the audience after I finished and say, well, "How about walking the walk? <laughs> You're talking the talk." And so that's when I it dawned on me: perhaps I really need to do something even more than what I'm doing. And so that's when I contacted the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, and uh, between us and them, and they were eager to see me do this. Is that I should challenge one of these mandates in the court myself and they were happy and delighted that I would do this and so I have launched a lawsuit against the federal government's mandate primarily because it's the travel mandate and that every Canadian could easily understand that right the travel mandate because it applies to almost every single family in Canada somebody has somebody in another province or uh, wants to visit another province or has a business in another province and so on. And also, as you and I well know, you on Cortes Island, we are, we are a nation that was built on travel. As I said earlier, the provinces came on into confederation with the railway, with the railway traveling. And even before the railway, the early explorers and the First Nations lived off the river systems of this country, all the way to later the St. Lawrence Seaway which brought modern cargo ships up into the central part of Canada. And so we are a country of travel. Nobody traveled more as a country than we have. And so I'm the second largest geographical nation in the world. Only Russia is larger in area than us. We're the second largest in the world in geography. So I thought it was important to use that travel mandate. The other reason why is... It goes directly to the Federal Court of Canada and then to the Supreme Court of Canada, okay? All of the provincial mandates have to start with provincial courts. And there's two courts that they have to go through in the province before they get to the Supreme Court of Canada. The trial division of the Supreme Court of British Columbia and then the Court of Appeal, okay? Then it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. So it has three steps, whereas mine is likely to have two steps because I'm already at the federal court. So I go from the federal court uh, to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I'm going to, if I lose in the federal court, I'm definitely going to appeal it to the Supreme Court of Canada. I'm not going to stop until I've exhausted every uh, vestige of chance of of reestablishing the the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And if I happen to win, or I should say if we happen to win because I have five other Canadians who are part of my lawsuit all of them affected in some way by the travel mandate some because of business some because of family and so on okay so so there's five other people who have put in statements of claim showing how that mandate that travel mandate has hurt their lives has destroyed in some cases their lives has completely significantly negated la- large parts of their lives So I'm not alone in this. There's five other um, Canadians who join me in this, although because of my uh, past as a First Minister, people talk about my lawsuit, but there's more than me involved. And and I'm, I'm very happy that these other five people are part of it because it strengthens my case, because all of these are different examples of how the mandate affects them. Okay? So now I'm in court. And uh, the court is court is underway, and there will be a public hearing quite likely in August. Between now and August, it's called case management, where the two sides exchange documents that they're presenting to the court, and each side has a chance to challenge the other one. All of that gets done before a judge before the actual public hearing of the court case, and that takes from February until about July, August, and then. Uh, we'll have four days of hearings, public hearings of the court uh, in September, of the federal court, so, and then the judge has or judges, however many it's going to be, to hear it. It might be one, it might be more than one. Uh, will uh, render their decision hopefully by the end of this year, and then I'm sure if the federal government loses, they're going to appeal. And I, I'm telling you today that if I lose and the other five of us lose, uh, we're going to appeal it to the Supreme Court of Canada which will be there for next year. So hopefully by sometime, by the end of next year, we'll have a decision on my case. It's highly likely that all the provincial court cases that are underway challenging the federal government and the provincial governments, mainly the provincial governments, will not get um, uh, decided upon until two to three years from now. Unfortunately, our court system is that clogged up and that slow. We, we need a system which is much faster and more like the American system or like a system that's faster anyway than the one we have now. So here we are uh, today now with some of the mandates being relie- uh, relieved across the country. But um, remember what happened. Um, our rights and freedoms were taken away from us based upon a, a, a situation where there, the virus, where there's a 99% recovery, where there's a less than 1% fatality where a lot of information was kept from us so that we couldn't make reasoned decisions about the virus or the vaccine in any case, because all of the data wasn't given to us. It was withheld and selective amounts of information were given even in British Columbia, as the letter I referred to earlier referred, uh, talks about, right? Now, all of this is gonna come out in court one day. My great fear, and I think people get relaxed when the mandates come off, that they'll think it's all over and we're back to normal. No, ladies and gentlemen, we're not back to normal, because if we don't win in the courts and reestablish the charter as being as powerful as it was 40 years ago and read it as it's supposed to be, or read, then the next time something happens uh, and somebody challenges it, uh, there will be a precedent set. And judges and courts love precedence. And that's why British common law was, was that's what it was done. It was done by precedent. Well, now they have a new precedent. So if you or me or our, our relatives or our friends go to the court four years from now, say, and, and we don't have this resolved in our favor, then the lawyer is going to say to you, well, I have to tell you something. What's that? Well, you know, back there in 2022, well, they had the government, you know, brought in all of these things, and the courts have, have, uh, have defended that, have, have, uh, have agreed with the, uh, uh, with the government's. And that becomes a precedent set, and the courts will look to that, and therefore the, the Charter Rights and Freedoms is diminished and doesn't have the same power that it's had for the last 40 years, okay? So it's very important that we exhaust this. I'm still hopeful, many people think I'm crazy, but I'm still hopeful that there are a number of independent judges on the Courts of Appeal in the provinces and the Supreme Court of Canada to see That what has happened so far in the lower courts of Canada, where they've ruled in favor of the governments, was wrong, wrong wrong-headed. The other thing I'll say, and I'll stop and give you a chance to ask questions, is this. Is that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms doesn't begin with Section 1. It begins with a preamble. And this is where the judges so far are so wrong, and why I'm so adamant about my position. And I'm so mad about what these lower court judges, one in British Columbia and one in Manitoba, who've who've, uh, sided with the provinces on what they're doing. This part of of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is extremely important and just as important as any other part of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It begins with this. This is how the Charter begins. Whereas this country is founded on the supremacy of God and the rule of law and a couple of these judges have even ignored that being in the charter at all in rendering their decisions and i and others will be pointing out in the court cases that the judges are obligated to look at all parts of the charter that are relevant in making their decisions and this is very and after that statement by the way whereas at the end of that sentence is a colon, not a period, not a comma, not a semicolon, a colon, which means everything follows after this. That's what a colon means, right? As some of you might remember from your grade five or grade six or grade seven English grammar years ago, there's a reason why we as creators of the Charter put that as a colon. It meant something. It meant that everything follows after this. And so the courts and the judges, we have to insist, interpret the Constitution in light of, in the context of, the supremacy of God and the rule of law. And when you apply those two principles, then my dear judge, then my dear premier, then my dear prime minister, what you have done for the last two years does not fall under the supremacy of God and the inalienable rights of individuals and of the rule of law. And so that's why I'm speaking to you today. That's why I had a Zoom call this morning with veterans in Ontario. That's why I have a Zoom call tomorrow morning at nine o'clock with lawyers and and other former ministers in, in various provinces. Uh, uh tomorrow uh arguing my my point of view as i'm doing to you today so we're at a real crossroads as a country It's one thing for the governments to borrow their way right i mean our prosperity to today is largely as a result of governments borrowing right uh, it's, it's unbelievable for example the debt of british columbia will go up from 75 billion to 105 billion 100 in three years doesn't go down. We're always borrowing. We're always spending more than we take in. And therefore, we have a deficit, which becomes a debt and is added to the debt every subsequent year. In the case of Canada, 40 years ago, our debt was $107 billion. 40 years ago. Today, it's over a trillion dollars, $1.4 trillion dollars. So a greater realignment has to happen in this country, not only as it relates to the Charter Rights and Freedoms, but a lot of other things that we're doing in our nation. We are not not operating sustainably. People talk about the environment and making it sustainable. Well, how about making the whole country sustainable while we're at it so that we have something here long-lasting, right? And that goes to our debt, that goes to our our charter of rights and many other things. Our schools have been deteriorating in the quality of education that is being taught to our children, right? There are many people who are homeschooling today, taking the children out of the public school system because they're not happy with the way things are going. There's no civics taught in the schools anymore. Nobody knows anything about the constitution anymore as if it just sits there and operates on its own. Listen, a democracy is only as healthy as the people who are involved in retaining it. As civic engagement decreases, so does your democracy. And right now we have all the elements of a failed democracy, right? We have all the elements of it where our rights and freedoms are being withdrawn based upon poor science and where our governments from coast to coast to coast are spending beyond their means and leaving it to our children. Just imagine what we're leaving. To. Do we think anything of our grandchildren? Do we think anything of the people who come after us? If we really did, we wouldn't be leaving this mountain of debt on their shoulders. What will they say about us when we're all gone? Won't be very kind because they'll have such a mountain of debt to pay off. It won't even be funny if there is a country, if there is a democracy left. So I rest my case. I'm glad you came out to listen to me, and I hope that I've at least stimulated you to think about your country and where it's going. Thank you very much.
1: You have been listening to the Honourable Brian Peckford, former Newfoundland Premier, who has a lawsuit against the Canadian government at the federal level um, based on the... uh, Discrimination um, that he's claiming, uh, beca- and uh, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this clearly, um, uh, around the travel ban that is currently in place for unvaccinated Canadians, which means that they cannot get, they cannot leave the country, um, they cannot fly within the country, they cannot ride trains. Um, or enter any other federal form of transportation. So the Honorable Brian Peckford and five other Canadians, along with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom, have filed a lawsuit in federal court. You have just listened to him talk about that on Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is Folk U Radio. I... We're going to now get some questions and answers, so stay tuned. Um, and he will uh, answer some of the questions that have come in already.
3: Um, I wanted to ask you if you've heard of the world pandemic constitution.
2: Yes, it's not a constitution. It's a, uh, it's a proposal by the, by the World uh, Health Organization. Right. I looked it up today, as a matter of fact, they're, they're, they are still working on what it is they're going to present to the various countries of the world. Yeah. They're trying to get a whole bunch of countries in the world to agree to a sort of a global kind of agreement, whereby then they would be in control of what happens in the, in the next pandemic. But it is not... Uh, the, their last meeting was on March 22nd of this year. And I'm glad you raised it because I had an email. I get a lot of emails, as you know, (laughs) like 20 an hour, 30 an hour. uh, And uh, it's it's quite overwhelming. But I had one from a a very, um, a person who's head of a big organization in Canada. And I had to go back to him today and say, I shall refer you to the World Economic Forum Negotiating Committee's minutes of March the 22nd. So they are trying this. And it's very important for you as a citizen to be familiar and aware of this and to tell your MPs, especially your MPs, and the Government of Canada that you want no part of this, that we want to continue to be sovereign as a nation state. And we're not gonna give away any of our powers to anybody else. That's what scares me about the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party and the New Democratic Party today. I was a member of the Conservative Party almost all my life. I left it two years ago uh, for the same reason as I'm talking about now. I'm very fearful that most of the leaders of the three main parties are prepared to negotiate some of our sovereign powers away. We've already started it. People don't know through the Trans-Pacific Agreement that we signed some years ago that that Donald Trump got out of, by the way. the the The, the, the much maligned Donald Trump said no because it will Diminish the powers I have as a president or that the Congress has. So we've already begun. We, we signed on to that. So, uh, you know, some of our uh, that's why England, by the way, the Brexit in England failed is because all of a sudden the farmers and the ordinary people realized that they were going to have to go to Brussels for certain things, not London, that their government that they elected. Was no longer going to be in control. That others who were unelected in Brussels were going to tell them how many bushels a week they could grow every year. Okay. So back to the pandemic. Your question is a really good one. Uh, I want uh, people uh, who's in attendance here and are listening or seeing me on Zoom to go to the World Economic Forum website, and you can you can find out for yourself what I'm saying. I just looked it up two hours ago. Okay. But they're working on it. It's not a complete. Nothing has been determined. OK. The other thing is, uh, the question will be, what kind of a uh, thing are they going to try to get the governments to sign? If it's just an agreement and not a treaty. Right. It may not have the power of law in Canada. It may have to be a treaty and it may have to be uh, authorized by the Parliament of Canada. And this is where you and I come in. Right. We don't want any Parliament of Canada or any member of our parliaments signing anything which is going to diminish our rights as a as Canada as a country and, and you're my rights to influence our MP right we don't want to have to try to start to influence somebody in Europe right who's part of the world economic forum right and who's now in control of the next pandemic right so you bring up a really good point, but we have time on our side it has not been negotiated it's still being worked on as to what the who wants to present to these nations of the world, okay? And you can find out that out if you go to the World Economic Forum. But it is a danger, and a real and present danger. And in the same way as we weren't paying attention to the Charter for 40 years, and now look where it's gone. That's what can happen here as it relates to the pandemic agreement. We've got to be vigilant as citizens every day, every week, uh, and try to make sure we keep our politicians accountable to us. Okay, and that's what I'm very fearful about. I'm fearful that the main parties in our country today uh, are all on side with doing something like this, because all of the governments have, in one way or another, I mean, the NDP are now with the Liberals. The Conservatives, when Mr. Harper was in, who I supported at the time, did negotiate that Trans-Pacific Agreement. And then the Liberals supported it as well, and the NDP supported it. And so that's not good for our nation. We should negotiate Trade, I'm not saying become an isolationist, right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying we'll we'll trade our wheat, but we'll trade it as a commodity, right? And in return, right, we'll do a deal with you where you trade oranges or whatever we can. We'll do an economic deal. I don't want any political deals. I don't want any of my sovereignty at stake. I want a, a straight economic deal. And as exactly. far as it goes, we want to control anything as it relates to health in our own country. Yeah. L- let me just say before the next questioner, I didn't cover and, and you would be, uh, uh, you might want to, um, you'll remember this perhaps later and say why I didn't ask the question. One of the other reasons why so many people who were fearful at the beginning remain fearful is that they didn't have easily access to the right information because the media shut everybody out okay they've shut me out. i used to write letters to the times columnists they won't accept my letters anymore even though the letter qualifies right qualifies under all of the terms and conditions that a letter writer was supposed to have to write a letter to their paper they used to carry my letters up until the pandemic hit and now they won't carry anything nor will the national post or anyone else, they just shut me out. Because guess what? Canada signed, CBC, and all of the uh, main uh, players in Canada signed the Trusted News Initiative, which was started by the BBC in London, and Twitter and Google, and all of them are part of it, and all of the main news organizations, Washington Post, New York Times, Associated Press, Canadian Press, all of them signed on that we are only going to carry what we consider to be good information because they were in the pockets of big pharma and they were in the pockets of all the governments. So we had to rely on Dr. McCullough. We had to rely on Dr. Brian Bridle losing his job at the University of, of Guelph. We had to rely on Dr. Charles Hoff up in Lytton, B.C. here, who, who was right denigrated, right? Uh, and and is threatened now with losing his license altogether. His, his hospital privileges in Kamloops were taken away from him, which were over half of his income. And then he lost his house in the fire up there this summer, this past summer. Dr. Charles yeah. is a living example of what has happened in British Columbia. We don't even have to look at Canada. We're just got to look at our own backyard, and it's happened here. We have doctors who have been maligned and can't get out the truth unless they their own dime right through alternate media because the main media won't carry Dr. Charles Hoff they won't carry me right and they won't carry Dr. Malthouse who lives on a on another island Denman Island just down from you guys and and they won't carry you know a a whole bunch of Dr. Paul Alexander Dr. Paul Alexander by the way uh, who who was um, educated at the McMaster University in Hamilton was listen to this was one of the advisors to the World Health Organization. That's how good he was supposed to have been. Right? Then he was an advisor to the World House under Trump. And then he left those, both those posts, saw what was going on with the Dr. Fauci and all of them, who he he now says to this day, don't even know what they're talking about. By the way, he's on Substack now, if you if you want to go into an alternate media source, and he's writing some brilliant work. A lot of his work is free to, to go to. If you go to the Brownstone Institute. It's online and it's free. And you can go in and see all of the la- latest experts on, on the pandemic and the virus and the vaccine and all that right there. All free. You can go in and, and read it for yourself. And Dr. Alexander also writes on that. But my whole point is, is that everything was shut down and made very difficult for all of the information to get out about this pandemic.
1: Thank you for bringing up that point.
2: I've been a member
1: of the media for more than 20 years, and it's been impossible to get things published that I consider to be dissenting from what is the main narrative. And that's my my question is to you. I'm also an immigrant, and I find it hard to often understand whether we are recently, as Canadians... Um, so intolerant of dissidents or whether that has long been part of Canada's history. Can you reflect a little bit on our appetite for what I thought was an important part of democracy, which was the dissenting point of view? um, And have we changed over the years about how much of that we can tolerate?
2: Thank you so much for that question. And and that question is packed with a whole bunch of stuff in it. And and I'll try to unpack it. You know, I'm coming round to the view, and I think it was due to how good we've had it uh, over the last 30 or 40 years from a material point of view. Uh, We've had it fairly well. And when people are, you know, you can go back to ancient Rome and see this happen. You can go back to Athens before that and see this happen. When people are materially comfortable, they're not as apt to be uh, alert to what their governments are doing in the same way as if they have to struggle a little bit. And so I've got a sneaky suspicion that there, there is in Canada, as we find it in most countries around the world, some, some built-in uh, prejudices and, and intolerances that uh, were hidden for quite a few years, or quite a few decades, as a matter of fact, perhaps hidden ever since the charter came in and are just now coming into view. Um, when I campaigned last year I went to doors in my area here on Vancouver Island where I was I was thrown out. I mean, I, I wasn't even allowed in their garden because I never had a mask on, for example. Um, and um, very, very intolerant. I, I saw it with my own eyes over and over again. And so when I look at what happened to the Chinese and the Japanese in recent times in Canada, and there's a museum up in the interior where some of the uh, the Chinese were sent and some of the Japanese were sent years ago during the second world war when we were uh, treating uh, Chinese and Japanese Canadians as if they were second-class citizens and denied the rights that all the rest of Canadians had. because once again, we were fearful. Uh, We we didn't recognize them as individuals in Canada. Uh, We were recognizing them as if they still lived in Japan or still lived in China. And so, uh, one has to be, you know, one has to be uh, honest with one's past. And then if you look at the First Nations and the past system that they had, uh, that one must uh, w- once again uh, uh, reflect very strongly on just how tolerant and how democratic a nation we are. When when we're materially well off, uh, we think we can pronounce uh, quite proudly about our democracy. Uh, but um, when the, the push comes to shove about putting your individual rights and freedoms ahead of uh, partial scientific information, which is fearful to you, uh, you choose to put down freedoms and rights and elevate partial science. Uh, And so, yeah, um, I don't think uh, that was just necessarily out of the fear uh, that was engendered early on in the pandemic. I think there was perhaps a little bit of an appetite for it. Perhaps we had a little bit of a predisposition, as they say, in medical science. Perhaps we had a predisposition to this kind of thing all along. It was just hidden uh, because we were comfortable. And when we we became either a bit uncomfortable, out comes the prejudices that perhaps were harbored there all along. Remember, the majority of the world, it doesn't live under democracy, right? Never did. Uh, Democracy is a very fragile uh, governance system, and it has to be uh, nurtured all the time in order for it to survive. And uh, that's where we are today in Canada. Um, democracies are very, very fragile, and uh, we should be aware of that. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't have it in mo- many parts of the world, and democracy is failing, by the way, in many parts of the world now. There's a um, there's a um, organization called Democracy Watch, which every year... Uh, tries to measure the level of democracy around the world. And for 17 years in a row now, the level of democracy in the world has been declining. And so that'll give you an idea. And when you look at countries around the world, look, who's on the Human Rights Council of the UN? Some of the biggest abusers of, uh, of human rights in the world. Venezuela is on the Human Rights Commission, right? China is on the Human Rights Commission. I mean, what a joke that is. And for all, we lament what's happening in the Ukraine. Ukraine is not a democracy. wasn't a democracy and is not today a democracy. And and whilst we've got to help and and do what we can to stop the brutality that's happening on all sides over there, we must remember that we're talking about two warring factions, both of which are undemocratic. Uh, Democracy is very, very fragile. And, uh, you know, uh, you look anywhere around the world where... Uh, we thought through the Americans that we could establish democracy like in Afghanistan. Well, it didn't work, did it? Trillions of dollars later or in Iran, right? Or in Iraq or in Syria, all of these places. Uh, While we watch a place that is a democracy like Israel being attacked even by people in the West. So I got a sneaky suspicion that if we're really honest with ourselves, we will recognize that we all uh, we all have, as as Christians will say, we all have sinned and we need to be aware that we have a lot of uh, uh, forgiveness. We have a lot of uh, uh, reck- reckoning to do. Um, and and it's really funny, Last uh, since the pandemic came out and all this business of rights and freedoms, I find a more receptive audience among all of the Eastern Europeans who came here uh, as immigrants and are now Canadian citizens. And they were out on the streets and came to my meetings uh, and and got up and asked questions. And because they could smell it, you see, they experienced it. I have a lady right here in in Parksville who came from Romania. And uh, she uh, was one of the first to go out campaigning with me and still is out with her signs almost every week. And uh, she she came to Canada, you know, just in the last decade. And so... She's old enough. She knows what happened in Romania. She knows it and she can smell it. And I know I have Hungarian friends and Bulgarian people who I knew years ago. They have witnessed uh, uh, when there's no democracy or when rights and freedoms are threatened all the time. And so they they uh, could recognize this where our own people could not recognize it because we were in that comfortable pew for the last
3: forty years. Hi, I just want to thank you, first of all, Brian, for being here for us and our rights and doing this talk. It's just really
1: awesome. Um, and uh, basically, you answer my questions faster than I can write them down.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I basically, I'm just at uh, like,
1: uh, what organizations can you recommend uh, to that are uh, are active in protecting the Constitution and, uh, okay. and this living tree thing? And 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 maybe I could throw one in there. Like, how does the WHO dictate? Uh, you know, our, our rights and our constitution? I mean, maybe you already answered that. but
2: Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I usually at the end uh, uh, t- try to give you some organizations. Well, I, I think in your area, it might be in, in Campbell River or nearby, and I don't know if you have it on your, own, on your own island or not, but Action for Canada is a very active organization which is de- defending rights and freedoms. Uh, Tanya Gah is the head of it. Uh, I think some of you might know of her. I've been on her program a couple of times doing what I'm doing to you right now. Uh, They're very active here in Parksville, where I am, and uh, they're active all across the country. There are chapters in every province of Canada. So they're very strong. I'm chairman of one called Taking Back Our Freedoms, which has become very, uh, um, um, what shall I say, Uh, growing very strongly. Started in Alberta. I'm chairman of the board of that uh, organization, Taking Back Our Freedoms. So you can go in and check it out, um, tbof.ca, and you'll find what they're doing. They're organizing and helping to organize things right across the country. And we have, by the way, all of these doctors that I mentioned on our board of advisors, Dr. Bridal, Dr. Payne, Dr. Eric Payne, Dr. Roger Hodgkinson, uh, Dr. Paul Alexander, uh, all of the top researchers in Canada are on our board of advisors. So that's a good organization to, uh, on the island here, in fact, Victoria, there's a very active group called We Unify Canada. We Unify. And they're the ones who've organized most of the very successful rallies on the steps of the legislative building in Victoria, where I have spoken a couple of times. They are having another big one coming up on May 28th, by the way, which is going to be a really big one. Uh, at which I'll be speaking as well. So uh, action, for can- uh, action for Canada, uh, Taking Back Our Freedoms, uh, We Unify Canada, are uh, our, our three. Uh, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance is another one where you can get a lot of good uh, medical information, really good. Canadian COVID Care Alliance, very strong. I've spoken to them as well. I've spoken to all these groups. Canadian COVID Care Alliance. If you remember that, uh, Just plug that into your computer and it'll come up their website. They've got a really good website. They've improved it on it over the last few months. A lot of big researchers are part of that organization. Dr. Steve Pelish out of the University of British Columbia who's very uh, who's got his own lab by the way. He owns a private lab that's associated with labs all over the world and he does testing uh, to see you you can get yourself tested there for a fee Uh, and he's well-known as a, a very professional, honest uh, researcher, he's known around the world. Uh, he's part of uh, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. I've spoken with him too. Um, um, We've spoke, spoken together on the steps of the Art Gallery in Vancouver back last, last fall. Wonderful man, great researcher. Uh, so the Canadian COVID Care Alliance is another one uh, that, to watch vaccine choice canada is another great one as well which started out of vancouver and uh, they're they're national and they're a very good organization so there's some good organizations websites to go into i mentioned brownstone institute which is really good robert kennedy's site is really good too and his book is a fabulous book i have it here i i, I bought one and have been reading it and it's just chock right full of science so robert kennedy's uh, what is it child health alliance or something uh most of you might know about that he, he's got a really good website and it's very up to date and and uh, there's a there's one out of them um, out of uh, england that is really good too called the heart group which is a group of doctors that do research in this area and there's another group called the frontline uh, ethics group which is all good research as well so those are some of the ones that you could uh, use as to get the latest information brownstone institute is really good they're updated with new articles every single day and uh, always really on top of it dr paul alexander's substack is a good one to go into robert malone is also on substack dr robert malone who helped uh, create these mr vaccines in the beginning he writes some good stuff uh, my blog i'm i talk full of my blog every day with a lot of this stuff and that's where I get it from all these websites. I write some stuff myself. So, my, my uh, blog, I get anywhere from like today, I'm quite likely to have seven or 8,000 today go into my blog uh, from all over Canada and all over the world. Uh, most days, I have anywhere from 50 to 60 countries visiting my blog. It's Peckford, a four and a two, two numbers, P E C K F O R D. The number four the number two that's the year i was born 1942. Uh, wordpress.com. and uh, i have people going in there i've been following you now for four or five years and uh, they write into uh, on the comments on my blog all the time telling me that's where they get most of their pandemic information from is from my blog and since the pandemic happened before that my blog was you know writing about everything about books i read about politics about things going on around the world. And since the pandemic arrived, it's been like 80, 90% on the pandemic, on the vaccine, uh, on the viruses. Talking about the vaccine, of course, you all know that um, that's the other thing that the press has kept from us, is all the deaths as a result of the vaccine. Uh, You know, um, the the, uh, VAERS system in the United States uh, is is, uh, a good site to go into VAERS, and where you can find out just how many have died from the um, the vaccine. And that's volunteer reporting. And uh, studies have been done to show that there's 10 times more than that that have actually died. And so it's highly likely in the United States today that there's been about 150,000 people died directly as a result of the vaccine. OK, the numbers are about 25,000 that we know about that have been volunteered to the VAERS system. Same way in England, in Europe, there's a system in in, uh, in Europe as well, in the European Union, uh, and where you can go into that EUDRA vision site, uh, EU DRA, and they're recording on a voluntary basis as well. And um, their system is equal to the United States uh, as well, where they've got tens of thousands of people that have died And hundreds of thousands who've been injured and you quite likely perhaps know people who've been injured from the vaccine. We know quite a few in our area and within our extended family of people who've been injured and some people who have died as a result of the vaccine. We have some in our uh, extended family who have died as a result of the vaccine. Uh, I get uh, I get um, emails every day from people uh, who have been injured from the vaccine and whom I'm trying to help, uh, by the way. So uh, this is the other side of the of the equation that nobody wants to talk about when that should be out in the public. everybody should know about these these things. and in Canada you go ask any doctor, any MD and they'll tell you that the process by which they have the report uh, adverse events is so complicated and so detailed and the doctors are so busy that most don't even make it out. We, our system is not near as good as the Americans or the Europeans for example, in reporting adverse events as a result of the vaccines. Now, you know, the experimental vaccines, all the experiments have not finished with those. And yet everybody's injecting this stuff. So any case, there we have it.
3: Hello, Mr. Packford, my name is Doug Hamill. I fought free trade in 87 and uh, saw a lot of shenanigans happen then. One of the biggest peddlers of misinformation back then uh, was the good old CBC. Yeah. Uh, I have not listened to that detritus for at least 15 to 20 years now because of what I saw happen. My position is the common law, the will of mankind seems to be getting diverted by these, these this corporation. As a Canadian citizen, is there any way we can launch a lawsuit against the CBC, And can I somehow put my taxes in escrow because I refuse to fund any of this anymore? I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, I think you you can launch
2: a lawsuit against the CBC. I think it would have to be along the lines of that you'd have to gather up uh, the stories and the information uh, of where uh, they have lied to the people of Canada. And it's not too hard to find that information. If you you started tomorrow morning and started to listen to, by the way, CBC Radio here on Vancouver Island. After I was down to one of those rallies in in Victoria, finally decided that they wanted to interview me, and uh, so they contacted the, me through my wife, who was looking after scheduling my um, my my uh, my days because they've gotten so busy, and so I reluctantly agreed to do. A, um, a interview, uh, what is it called? Bank of Island in the morning, Island in the morning or some darn thing, uh, I used to listen to it one time. In any case, um, they, uh, they interviewed me, and of course it was quite, uh, uh, what shall I say, consultational, the questions were you know, all leading questions. And uh, so I fought back because I knew immediately what was going to happen. And, uh, and of course, a number of people, I think a couple of people from uh, a number of the islands uh, wrote me uh, to tell me that they had listened to it and that, thank God that you fought back against what they were, they were trying to frame you. And uh, you fought back and, 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 and you really won the, won the thing, won the day and we're really grateful that you did that. However, by the way, they're the only CBC uh, thing in Canada. And they used to call me all the time before this happened has ever contacted me in the last two years. Now, my wife, when she set up the interview, my wife is really detailed and good at this, and she said to the producer of the programme, you really enjoy this, this is right here in British Columbia, right on the island of Vancouver Island. <laughs> she said to this female producer, uh, you know, every time uh, Brian or Mr. Peckford does one of these, we get the people to send us a copy of the interview or a copy of the Zoom a copy of the video so that we can store it, right? Because it's good history and we might want to refer back to it. And, uh, you know, just as a courtesy, would you do that in this case? Oh, of course. Of course we will do, we'll do that. We'll make sure you get it. So after the interview was over, which didn't go very well for CBC in Vancouver, in Victoria, um, we waited for a day or two because sometimes it takes two or three days for the people to get this all assemble and, and and sent to us by email whatever and uh, so we waited a couple of days nothing happened so carol my wife called down to the producer and asked what happened to a copy of the interview we did it was only an audio interview right what what happened to the audio that you didn't you didn't send it to us we can't find it <laughs> so so i think you could launch but Unfortunately, you can't put your taxes in escrow um, uh, because of how you feel about CBC. The, the government's got laws that, that say you, you pay your taxes, and goes into consolidated consolidate revenue and then they distribute it as they see fit. So, uh, you know, but I think you can launch a lawsuit. Let me just give you one other example of just how bad these people are. I was out of politics. And one of my friends in St. John's, Newfoundland, who was a prominent honest businessman uh, and who campaigned, was my campaign manager during my time in politics, and was honest as the day is long, and he was maligned by CBC on their supper program back about almost 10 years ago now, I guess, long when I was out of politics. I was out of politics in 89 so uh because i i was in politics early i was 36 when i got into politics and i was out at 46 believe it or not i was in politics from the time i was aged 29 i was premier at 36 and 46 sorry i was 17 years in politics all told so anyway they had this supper program on and the lead story on their cbc supper hour in st john's newfoundland was brian peckford's former campaign manager is uh, has not paid his taxes and has received gotten a space uh, for um, rented a space to the government illegally. Now he, he was he was of course they had to say it was Brian Peckford's friend. Anyway, CBC, well, that was a complete and utter lie, my friend who just died six or eight months ago, same age as me, from a very strange debilitating disease, who was very much alive at the time this happened, took CBC to court and found them completely so much so that they pulled out of court for a number of billions of dollars in my friend's favor and were forced to, in the next supper hour after the court decision came down, to make an announcement on that same program that they had been wrong and found guilty in what they had put on that program the year before. Of course, I could have taken them to court too.
3: they
2: They used it in the context of illegal activity. I didn't bother. As long as my friend won, that was good enough for me.
3: I've been doing a lot of research over the past few years. I used to have a radio show here. I interviewed Catherine Austin Fitz. I've interviewed uh, Paul, uh, what was his name?
2: Alexander. The other
3: cabinet minister. No, the other cabinet minister, Paul. Oh, now I'm forgetting his name. Sorry, I'm yeah. nervous. It makes no difference. I found nobody that can answer this question for me. I have in my hand U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. I've typed in the word Canada. This is, you know, this securities. This is what they where they exchange securities, stocks, bonds, all that. Canada is in the US Securities Exchange Commission. If you want, I can send you this. I'm trying to figure out why a sovereign nation is registered under a securities exchange commission in the United States. Are we actually a corporation? No. no. Thank you.
2: We are not. A number of people have brought that idea up to me. Uh, I've never seen it. Uh, I've never seen a document, a securities uh, uh, document, which has just Canada, uh, the, the country Canada as a corporation. Uh, there are there are um, uh, names on the Securities Commission with the name Canada in it, but it's not the country Canada. Uh, so I would be very interested to see that document because I don't believe it to be valid. One of the biggest problems you have today is there's a, there's a lot of good information on the internet and there's a lot of bad information on the internet. We are...
3: This is straight from the Securities Exchange Commission itself, the website itself. I've made sure I I it. I will email it to you, sir. You even have a Please. form, and form 18K-A. I, I looked up what that was. It's an annual report and it says, of Canada, name of registrant. It's here. Okay, okay, please send it I'll to send me. I'll send it to you. I will send it to you. I just want to yeah. get that one straight because I couldn't yeah. find anybody to answer it for me. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you're kindly welcome. But but uh, Canada is set up, as I've gone
2: through in the last hour, uh, under the BNA Act and under now the Constitution Act of 1982. It's a completely sovereign nation. It's recognized as such by everybody around the world. We, we as you and me, every day are living under these... Laws, whether we like them or not, some we like, some we don't like. As we're, that's why we're here today. Because some we don't like, we think they're being uh, applied wrong. But we are a nation, and we're not a corporation. But I'm very, very eager to get that um, um, information uh, because I want to, I want to dispel any false notions that are around uh, because uh, it only, it doesn't help our cause. It hurts our cause uh, when I start talking about. The Constitution Act of 82 uh, as a as a uh, as a living document under the country Canada as a country and not as a corporation uh, that that kind of information uh, denigrates what I'm trying to do and what others like me are trying to do so it's very important for me to get it my email of course I think the gentleman might have it already uh, and uh, he can send it to me and I'd be very happy to respond to him and, and show him where I think. Uh, this this may be erroneous. Uh, oh, I'm
0: Johnny Cash.
1: You have been listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM. We play today a talk by the Honourable Brian Peckford, former Newfoundland Premier, uh, about his... About basically the founding of the um, and the the patriation of the Canadian Constitution and the founding and creation of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which um, was passed in 1982. So that's relatively recent, but nevertheless, Brian Peckford is the last living first minister who was part of the writing and passing of that Constitution, and he has also uh, recently been the lead along with some other Canadians. Um, and the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom in a lawsuit uh, that has been brought against the federal government for their mandatory COVID-19 vaccine requirements for air, train, and other travel. So that talk was given live Wednesday at Manson's Hall uh, with Brian Peckford on Zoom. Thank you so much to uh, the SCCA Programming Committee for bringing that to this area, and thank you, Brian Peckford, for allowing folk you radio to both record and play that and thank you listener as always because it is not community radio without a community i hope you'll stay tuned uh, in a little bit i'll come back for some local announcements and upcoming events Mm -hmm. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's f o l k u.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Radio.ca
0: little brains almost always got something lame it's got to say it's embarrassing all the stupid things i can't